There is one announcement that didn't make the bulletin that I need to remind you of. We did this last year. I'd like for us to do it again this year. If you check carefully in the fine print on your liturgical calendar, you'll see that next Sunday, Labor Day weekend, is Seersucker Sunday. And I know some of you had forgotten. And I uh, just wanted to remind you, last chance. After that, the fashion police may pull you over. So... Uh, Next Sunday, let's, uh, let's see what we can do. We had a lot of fun with that last year, and hopefully we can have some more fun with that this year. So uh, let's see what happens. I want to continue with our summertime series, Take a Letter. We've been working with this for uh, several weeks now, and we'll continue this theme throughout the month of September. And then we'll go in some other directions, but take a letter, and our passage today is from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 8, beginning with verse 7. And once again, I'm going to be reading from the message, from Eugene Peterson's translation, the message. So if you're following along in another translation, you may hear this a little differently, and that's okay. Maybe we will all hear what, what God is saying to our hearts this day. Second Corinthians 8, beginning with verse 7. You do so well in so many things. You trust God. You're articulate. You're insightful. You're passionate. You love us. Now, do your best in this too. I'm not trying to order you around against your will. But by bringing in the Macedonians' enthusiasm as a stimulus to your love, I'm hoping to bring the best out of you. You are familiar with the generosity of our Master, Jesus Christ. Rich as he was, he gave it all away for us. In one stroke, he became poor and we became rich. So here's what I think. The best thing you can do right now is to finish what you started last year and not let those good intentions grow stale. Your heart's been in the right place all along. You've got what it takes to finish it up, so go to it. Once the commitment is clear, you do what you can, not what you can't. The heart regulates the hands. This isn't so others can take it easy while you sweat it out. No, you're shoulder to shoulder with them all the way. You're surplus matching their deficit. They're surplus matching your deficit. In the end, you come out even. As it is written, nothing left over to the one with the most, nothing lacking to the one with the least. This is the word of God for the people of God. Have you ever written a letter? I mean, I know some folks still write letters. Maybe it's been a while. But have you ever written a letter, stamped, sealed, addressed it, dropped it in the mailbox, down at the corner, and immediately you regret it sending that letter? I suspect that many, if not most of us, have done that somewhere along the way. Feelings may have been hurt. Dreams may have been shattered. Hope deferred. If only we had allowed the letter to chill for a day or two before we dropped it in the mailbox, we might have dropped it in the shredder instead, like hitting delete instead of send. Several years ago at our Georgia pastor school, our bishop at the time was Ernest Fitzgerald, and he was talking to us 
And he was telling us about a story, something that occurred during his time as a pastor at a large United Methodist church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. There was a community issue that was really raging, and people were getting real upset and real intense about it. And uh, he had written a letter that he was going to send to someone in the community about that issue. And he dictated it to his secretary. And when she typed it out on church stationery and brought it to him to sign, he looked at it and realized she had changed some of the wording. She said that phrase was inappropriate. So I took it out. This is what he said, he said to her. I don't believe he really said it. What he said that he said to her was, woman, you are tampering with the word of God. Uh, I don't think he said I hope he didn't say that. Um, (laughs) Further reflection led him to the realization that she was right. And that she had kept him out of some boiling water because she cared enough to take that sentence out of the letter. We all, hopefully, have some colleagues or friends or family folks who will intervene once in a while and keep us from speaking or writing toxic words that can do so much harm to others. I wonder if the Apostle Paul ever wished that he had refrained from sending a letter. Given what we know about Paul, do you reckon that anyone ever said to him, Brother Paul, I think you ought to put it all in a letter. You ought to write it all out and then let it just sit for a while before you mail it. Would anybody have had the audacity, the courage to say that to Paul? Words spoken or written in letters, written in anger, often do so much more harm than than good. And I'm not sure Paul would have heeded such a warning He comes across as someone who could be very stubborn in his attitudes and his actions. But he did write some angry letters, didn't he? Go back sometime when you've got a moment and read through the book of Galatians. There's some harsh words there, some angry words in Galatians. And if the English translations hadn't sort of cleaned the language up a little bit, you might be stunned that such words were in your Bible. 2 Corinthians from which our scripture lesson for today comes, does not appear to be an angry letter. But those who received this letter responded partially in anger. Even though it seems like Paul's trying to be very conciliatory here, he starts by listing some of their strengths, by bragging on them a little bit, and then he sort of eases into the real point, the things he wants to point out, their weaknesses. One of the primary sections of this Second Corinthians is why and how the Corinthians can take place in a collection raising money for the saints who are in Jerusalem. Their zeal for excelling has not always been considered a positive thing by Paul. In other words, their enthusiasm would get away from them, according to Paul. And I had a a friend, a colleague, a Baptist pastor years ago who liked to remind me that 
enthusiasm covers a multitude of sins, but that's not always the case. And I think Paul was pointing out here that their enthusiasm was not always a good thing. Sometimes it was was misdirected. And so he's trying to correct them a little bit, but he doesn't want to pour too much cold water on their enthusiasm. So um, he's, he's working with these folks. Now, whether positive or not, excelling is a characteristic of the Corinthians is Paul understood them. And in the opening verse of our passage, he attempts to turn that to positive ends. If somebody's got enthusiasm, even if it's misdirected, sometimes with a little encouragement and a little advice and maybe a boundary or two here and there, something good can come from it. He said, you do so well in so many things. You trust God. You are articulate with your words. You're insightful. You're passionate. You love us. Now do your best in this too. You're good at all these other things. Now do your best in this other thing, this collection that I I want you to put together. He has to walk gingerly with the Corinthians, not only to mend his relations with them, but to reinvigorate them, to restore them to a place so that this collection, this offering comes through. And he says he wants to do it without a command. I'm not trying, he said, to order you against your will. That usually doesn't work so well, does it? The Corinthians should operate as fully out of their own free will as the Macedonians have done. Paul wants the church to test their love by comparison with the zeal of the Macedonians in this offering. The folks in Macedonia had raised all this money to be sent to the saints in Jerusalem who were struggling at the time, who were having a difficult time and needed some help. Somewhere along the way, don't we all? And Paul wants those Corinthians to operate, though, out of their own free will. Not because somebody's commanded them or ordered them to do this, but because their hearts have been stirred to do it. Paul leaves the outcome for the Corinthians to decide, but he readily gives his own opinion. He always did. And these Corinthians know that from one of his earlier letters, Paul thinks his opinion ought to carry some weight because of his trustworthiness, because he's built a relationship with these people, and he at least deserves to be heard. Grace And how it is responded to, like love, is best not commanded, but left to the discretion of the persons involved. You can't make somebody be graceful. You can't make somebody love. And that's why Paul pictures the Corinthian decision about grace as their test. How are they going to come out with this? Now, as they face their test in this matter, Paul wants to remind them of the big story. Paul's all about the big story. That's what he always comes back to and wants them to be reminded the big story. And this time, the big story is told in categories of poverty and of wealth. The story about grace, verse 9 of our passage is retrofitted sort of into these economic categories that are at hand, the collection. And the big story is the Lord Jesus Christ, though rich, became poor for the sake of the Corinthians and for all of us, as a matter of fact, and this telling of it so that in their poverty, so that they might become rich in in Christ. Our biggest story, a, a bigger picture, not just the economics at hand in this story, but that larger picture that the Lord Jesus Christ who had it all became poor and became one of us so that we might become 
more godly in our lives. Now, the Corinthians face their test of this love and generosity toward others. Paul reminds them the big story, the grace in which they stand, the reason we give of our financial resources and everything else we have to give because God has poured so abundantly into our lives. And then how will they possibly be able to stifle the overflow of this abundance into the life of others if they realize that it's all from God to begin with? And we so easily forget that. Once again in this letter fragment, Paul pulls out weightier arguments to bolster his appeal to the Corinthians. He said, you are familiar with the generosity of our master, Jesus Christ. Rich as he was, he gave it all away in one stroke for our sake and became poor. The Corinthians will not be surprised then Paul's got some practical suggestions for them, he often did, and that in his character they have experienced with him through their relationship. Accordingly, he first urges them to regain their original enthusiasm for the project, for this special offering. So here's what I think, he writes. The best thing you can do right now is to finish what you started last year and not let your intentions grow stale. Hold that thought, if you will. We're going to circle back around to it in just a moment. How do we keep our good intentions from growing stale? Your heart's been in the right place all along, he said. You got what it takes to finish it up. Once the commitment is clear, you do what you can, not what you can't. The heart regulates the hands. Paul makes it clear he does not expect them to be put under some kind of unreasonable pressure to come up with some gift that's not in proportion to what they have and what they're able to do. That kind of working on folk with fear and guilt and manipulation, we tease about that sometimes, but that's not appropriate and it doesn't work. And expanding on this, Paul gives us a window of his sense of fairness and his sense of goodness and equity in the sharing of goods. The proper care of what we have shared among the believers. Fairness, equality seems to be his guideline for the contributions he's talking about here. The principle that those who have abundance share with those who are in need That's just at the core and the heart of our faith, isn't it? We are blessed to be a blessing. Paul's saying it again. In other words, in reciprocating fashion here, the Corinthians' current abundance should meet the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. And there may come a day when that will flow the other way, when the vice versa thing will kick in. We never know. Nothing left over to the one with the most, nothing lacking to the one with the least. So, does this portion of 2 Corinthians constitute a fundraising letter? And I'm glad you're sitting down because the answer is yes, right there in the Bible, a fundraising letter. I know how it is when I go to the mailbox and get these letters from all these groups and organizations, and you wonder how in the world they got your name and how they figured it all out. And when I see who it's from and you kind of figure out who what it's all about, either right in the trash or right in the shredder, it's gone. And we don't have a good feeling about fundraising letters a lot of time. But there's one here, and it's in the New Testament, and it's in this letter from Paul. And maybe we need to think about that a little bit and not let our good intentions grow stale, he says. How do we keep good intentions fresh in our life? 
And I've always heard, it's not in the Bible, though some folks quote it like it is. I've always heard that the road to you nowhere is paved with good intentions. You've heard that saying too. How do we turn those good intentions into good actions? And let me suggest just one way today, and I want us to think about that for a moment or two. Hopefully you've got some other ways, and I would, I'd love to hear from you as well. But when I thought about this, I think that one way to turn those good intentions into good actions is by following what we call in our tradition now the three simple rules. Since it was published in 2007, the late Bishop Reuben Job's book, Three Simple Rules, has been widely read and studied not only in our tradition but by others maybe your sunday school class has studied your small group maybe you've read that book three simple rules can lead us to a more faithful way of living as disciples of jesus christ in this world it can help keep our good intentions fresh if we keep these rules before us they are easy john wesley believed that following christ in this way would renew individuals and communities of faith in such a way that their good intentions would never grow stale they would find ways to make a difference in this world in the church and elsewhere These disciplined practices gave power and strength to the class meetings, to the early groups of Methodists in the early days of the Methodist movement when folk would get together and pray for one another and care for one another and, yes, even confess their sin before one another and not wait till somebody else found out and ratted you out or you got called on a surveillance camera or something. They actually would would talk about the things that, we're not right in their life and ask for forgiveness and for help. And these three rules helped our ancestors to keep their intentions fresh. They'll work the same way for us. I'm convinced of that. Bishop Job in his book helps us to return to those early Wesleyan roots that can transform us and transform the world in which we live. These three rules is an alternative to the frenzies and divisive and destructive lifestyles that our culture offers us. This alternative way of life is accessible to everyone, regardless of your age or your financial standing or your race or your gender or your education or your health or your theological premises. It helps us to keep our good intentions from growing stale. It's a way of holy living in a world where there's constant need of reform and renewal. They are Christian practices that also can help to heal the wounds of the world, a world where there's great injustice, and great brokenness. Loving God results in loving the world. Spiritual disciplines, practices that bind us not only to God, but bind us to one another. And they are, you remember the three rules? I know many of you can, can speak them clearly. The general rules, as Wesley would have called them in his day, first, do no harm, second, do good, and three, stay in love with God. Close relationship with God empowers us to love God and our neighbor. And as we remember these three simple rules, our intentions are kept fresh and our good intentions become good actions. What are some of the good intentions of ours that as God's people, sometimes they they just don't become good actions. They get lost along the way. We need to know that good intentions alone do not lead to the spiritual maturity, to the growth and the faith that we all hope for and we all long for until they become actions. Have we ever intended to make that phone call, 
to someone who was ill or hurt or lonely or angry with us. But the time never seems right. Or we don't think of it unless we happen to wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and I've come to an understanding that most 3 a.m. phone calls are underappreciated. Have we ever intended to, to sign up for that Bible study or that spiritual disciplines course? But by the time we get around to it, the registration is closed, the class is well underway, and to go in late, sometimes it's not a good thing for those who have been there since the opening bell was rung. Ever intended to read that book, the one that you may have bought or somebody gave you years ago that's sitting on the shelf or sitting beside your easy chair? A book that might offer some guidance and some hope and some comfort and some direction in your life? Or maybe it's one of those books that will challenge you because it's different from the way you think and the way you understand this faith of ours. There was always something more fun to read or to watch or to hear. Have we ever intended to volunteer for that ministry, to get involved in that mission effort? But there was always something else vying for our time and energy, always. As soon as this or that has been completed and is behind us, we tell ourselves, then we'll volunteer and we'll make a difference for better in this world. But this or that never lets up, does it? That pressure is always there. Much intentionality is required for good intentions to become good actions. Have we ever intended to give that gift? But somehow, some way, our own wants and our own needs always move up to the top of the list. And this is somewhat what Paul was writing about in this scripture lesson to be more specific. Telling the folks at Corinth, God's been good to you. I need you to gather some of your abundance and pass it on to the saints in Jerusalem because they're struggling. They're having a hard time right now and they need what you have to offer. Remember the Macedonians. But we know how that is. The giving that should come first often gets bumped to the back of the list. First place to last place. What we know we ought to do often gets moved from the locomotive back to the caboose and then just somehow forgotten about. Good intentions that become good actions never grow stale. They always stay fresh. A letter well written, well thought out, well prayed over can make somebody's day or change somebody's life. Whether we write that letter or speak it or, or go ourselves, is it our intention to pen such a letter? Maybe you're thinking now you know whose name needs to go on that envelope. What's preventing that good intention from becoming a good action? Don't let those good intentions grow stale. And when you drop that letter in the box, you'll never regret it. Amen.